Pod. Pod. It's like pod. A, it's like an M dash almost. The pod. It's like I don't know. I'm trying to. It feels like punctuation, but I'm not sure quite what. Is it an M dash? Is it an exclamation point? It's not an exclamation point. It's not excited enough to be an exclamation point. Welcome back to Say Who Say Pod. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. Uh, the Washington Huskies got to their bye exactly how they wanted. They're five and zero. They beat Arizona. It's going to be an undefeated versus undefeated matchup against Oregon um, in a couple weeks. Danny, do you feel two questions? Do you feel better or worse, or I guess neither, about Washington coming out of the desert? And have you ever had a Sonora dog before? I have not had a Sonora dog. And after reading your description, I feel that I've been missing out. And then I was trying to think, maybe that's what they were selling out near Edgar's Cantina. It is a bacon-wrapped hot dog. It doesn't sound like it's full Sonoran, though. Um, Sounds delicious. It's good. I believe the hot dog is one of the more unfairly maligned meats that exists. I think hot dogs are freaking delicious. The best um, part about the Sonoran dog is that the bun is like a pocket, so you can kind of it's the you read the description and it's like that's a lot of stuff, and then you get it and you're like that's a lot of stuff, but it holds it well. It holds, yeah. it, holds it well. You can eat it with your hands. Yeah, so that that sounds pretty good. So, uh, no, have not had a Sonoran dog, so it's on on the list uh, of of things that I will at one point try. I certainly. Felt worse about the Huskies coming out of the game than I did going in. And then you kind of move to a bigger picture perspective, which is every team has unexpected difficult moments in a college football season. And you try to survive those as opposed to losing those. You've no teams immune from those. Even you look at the other top tier teams in the Pac-12 USC <laughs> let Colorado back into the game just earlier that day. And USC had a, a pretty unimpressive performance against Arizona State. And Oregon, I don't want to say they almost lost to Texas Tech, but it was conceivable they could have lost to Texas Tech. So Georgia. there's nothing disqualifying or jaw-dropping about the way the game, the fact that it was close. And it really, like that, Washington's game against Arizona was not as close as Oregon's game against Texas Tech. But it's not something that made you feel great. You didn't come out of that like, oh, yeah, that confirms everything I thought about this team. It was one of the weirdest games I've seen in a long time. Um, You mentioned in teams, you know, the value of finding a way to get by when you're a good team and it's a good season. Georgia needed every, you know, everything to get past Auburn Mm -hmm. on, on Saturday, right? And Auburn beat Cal 14 to 10. So how good, you know, I'm sure there's some hand-wringing at, at Georgia over that as well. Um, I, I cited the Stats of War Twitter account after the Tulsa game because people were kind of, uh, they didn't play all that great. And Washington's net success rate margin was wider than any winning team in the country that week. And so that was a good show of like, yeah, they completely dominated this game. Um, Washington was on the left side of that graph this week that Arizona's net success rate was actually higher. The margin was actually, but it felt like Washington was frequently one or two plays away from ending that game in the second half. 
So, um, and you know, success rate doesn't tell you everything like explosives matter, that type of thing. But, um, Arizona was like 90th percentile in offensive success rate in that game without having any rushes longer than 13 yards. And I think I counted it. There were, so Noah Fafita completed 27 passes, 10 of them gained double digit yardage and five of those were on their final possession. So they really were not moving the ball in chunks at all, but they were, they were moving it enough on first down enough on second down to get themselves into third and short converting some third downs. They converted a fourth down. They just, um, they, they moved the ball enough on most plays to put themselves like in a position to stress Washington's defense. And, you know, I, I, I don't know that you're ever going to beat this Washington team without any explosives. So I'm sure that, um, the Huskies defensive coaches probably were not like displeased with the way that they played. They kept things in front of them and, you know, really forced Arizona to go the length of the field to score. But um, yeah, just a, a number of plays it, right. If, if Penix hits that shot to Odunze uh, when they get the ball back up two scores with four and a half minutes left, you know, cause that seemed like that was available games over. If Thaddeus Dixon comes down with that interception on, on the very next possession, the game's over. There's a fourth and one on Arizona's last touchdown drive. They got a chance to 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 end it there earlier in the fourth quarter, right? Jeremy Bernard, the big one, fumbles on the five yard line. If he just gets tackled there, and then they punch it in, they're up three scores with seven, with with nine minutes left, and the game's basically over. So I I don't know that it's um they didn't go down to the desert and play in a way that suggested that they're not that much better than Arizona. And I give give Arizona credit. They had, if you want to keep the score down and make it look like you were right there with Washington and your defense did a great job, that's exactly how you should play. Um, that said, Washington averaged 7.2 yards per play and had every opportunity to score 40-plus in this game. So I, I don't think they're coming home thinking, oh my gosh, they really limited us. we got to figure out how to, how to game plan against a defense like that because that was so hard. They... The way Arizona played, I don't want to say it shows a blueprint on how to beat Washington, but they showed two things that are potential weak spots or antidotes to what Washington does. The first of which we've already seen, which Cal did a year ago, which is if you keep a top on your defense, if you keep Washington from getting behind you in the passing game, Washington can become frustrated and it becomes less efficient. Like that that clearly happened and some of that changed over the over the course of the game and you saw an ability for they did find some ways to get deep. Um I'm not a big tape and scheme talking guy, but it seemed like figuring deep. out what, how to how to get guys on deep crossers that everybody likes to talk about. <laughs> God, I hate myself for saying that. I really I I cannot stand when people who aren't coaches come on and talk like coaches. Um, they did find ways to get guys behind the defense in the second half. So I, I want to point that. But that first part of, hey, keep it in front of you. Um, if if you play a defense that you just firmly keep everybody in front of you, that's the best way to try to defeat Washington or make their offense less potent. Like you said, 7.2 yards of play. Give 
give that up if you can keep them from getting behind you. The second part is, I think, what we've all been waiting to see, which is how resilient, how good is this defense actually? They have not been getting gashed. That's another of my favorite terms. Gashed. <laughs> Deep crossers. Or or getting getting hammered, uh, having people take the top off their defense. <laughs> Uh, as they did a year ago. Gashed is, it's just the perfect word though, right? It's so funny. I, I've got a whole like list of terms that we use. Uh, a run defense getting gashed, the blitz getting dialed up, a starting pitcher cruising. At, at, at Once he retires five straight batters, the starting pitcher is cruising. If he throws 30 pitches in an inning, he's laboring. Yeah, you're, only, you're only cruising till you're laboring. And then your bullpen... What happens when you start using your bullpen too much? Oh, the bull, the bullpen is taxed. They're taxed. They the bullpen taxed. is always taxed. Yes. The Washington isn't as vulnerable to the big plays it was a year ago, but what Arizona showed is that if you stay sort of humble or stay meager, like if you just look to dink and dunk and chip away at it, they're not overwhelming either. What Washington Washington was not able to get stops and put them in difficult situations when. Because Arizona was content to sort of just grind away. So I don't know how much of that's going to play into what Oregon wants to do. Because Oregon's a pretty different offense. And they're certainly not going to come into any game thinking we need to slow it down against this opponent. But I I think Arizona had a really good game plan. And I think they actually executed it pretty effectively. And it was as close as a game can be. When your opponent never has the ball with a chance to tie or take the lead in the second half, yeah. it was it was as close as it can be without really actually getting close. It was very strange because I was on the field for most of the fourth quarter. Like I guess I guess more like the second half of the fourth quarter, and I'm looking around and a lot of people had left, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, man, this you know they announced a sellout, and I do think that was accurate, you know. Maybe not right at kickoff, but it did fill in. It was a really good crowd, and I'm like, everyone's gone. And it, this is this game doesn't feel. Then you look at the scoreboard, and it's like, well, they're up by 14 points, and you know Arizona doesn't like they haven't been hitting the explosives, which you're going to kind of need to do if you're going to erase a two touchdown deficit against a better team in the last few minutes here. But yeah, I don't. It was just it was so weird because it felt like Washington dominated, but it also felt like their defense was susceptible, but then you look at Arizona's offensive stats and it's like nothing about this box score says that the defense was bad. But if you watched it, you probably came away feeling like Washington's defensive interior and run defense was a little soft. And But at the same time, their DBs tackled really well, made a couple of really mm-hmm. nice plays in space, Elijah Jackson especially. Um, yeah, I the pass rush feels like it's a little bit lacking, but... I don't know that they've had a ton of opportunities to just like tee off on a quarterback who's standing back there holding the ball. So I don't know. I, I think the bottom line at this point is look at the five quarterbacks that they've faced so far. And if you show that list to any Husky fan before the season and said, what's the acceptable record for this Washington Huskies team against this slate of quarterbacks, 100% of them would have said five and zero. you must go five and zero against those five quarterbacks. You must. You are not a playoff contender if you don't. And they got that done. But now it's Bo Nix coming up. 
And then in November, it's Caleb Williams. It's maybe Cam Rising. I don't know. Will I, I kind of assumed he'd be back by November. We'll see. I, but, you know, Utah is Utah anyway. Um, and then you, you got you got DJ Uyunglele, and then you got Cam Ward. So um, it's – they haven't done anything to make me think they're not better defensively. Mm-hmm. But but there's just only so much you can prove against the offenses they've faced. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the defense is clearly better, and and specifically, I think the secondary, the secondary is is the most improved unit on the team. And there's nothing from Washington's offense that has made you think that it is, it, it is certainly as good, and I think clear is a better offense than it was a year ago, and that's freaking remarkable. There, it's a really, really nothing has happened so far that would make you feel anything other than, hey, Washington is right there as one of the very best teams, not just in the conference, but in the country. And they've got everything in front of them to play for, starting with a game coming off a bye at home against Oregon. It's going to be a great that's this is exactly what you had hoped for is this kind of matchup. The uh, the other growing concern going into that game I think is is worth a conversation from our pal Ian McFarlane Ian is a person that it's worth talking to because I could sit here and explain how if you're looking for new opportunities to expand uh, your market of customers find a different way to reach people why would you listen to me when you can talk to Ian and each week Ian McFarland of ipmcfarland.com has a question that he thinks is worth a conversation with us Christian, I want to thank you for sharing your uncle's story this week and pass along my, my deepest regrets as, as someone who enjoyed his work for years and as someone who is currently experiencing the, the hell of mourning the living. Um, I, I just feel incredibly deeply for you and, and for your family. Um, and I, I, again, thank you for, for, for sharing such wonderful stories. Um, in that vein, let's let's heed his advice and point to item number four on his uh, words of wisdom. Injuries are always worse than what the coach or manager lets on. There are no doubt injuries that will be magically healed by the time the Oregon game comes around next weekend. Um, but there are others that we might need to be worried about. In the two of your expert eye, which which injuries have you most worried? Um, obviously, beyond those that have been announced as as long term. Again, I uh, I offer my deepest sympathies. I'll be thinking about you and your family, and go dogs. Well, thank you, and I really appreciate that. Uh, we'll I think we'll chat a little bit more about about Jim here in a moment but yeah it he was the first person who ever told me like hey always play up always play up injuries because it's always worse than what they're saying um and i so two things here we'll get into the kind of the players we need to keep an eye on but i I think we need to recalibrate our um interpreting kaylin DeBoer speaking about injuries okay scale it's 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 becoming a little less reliable danny it's interesting uh, yeah, it's to the point where, you know, the optimism maybe suggests that it'll be another week. And if they're willing to say a guy's doubtful, it'll probably be a few weeks. 
Um, I, I think it's it's uh, they've they've ventured into grain of salt territory with injury updates, which you know kind of inevitable, right? Why give why give it away when nobody else is? But um, yeah, these last few weeks especially, it's been a little like, hmm, is he going to play? I kind of don't think that guy's going to play. So have we gotten to the point where if a guy suffers a season-ending injury, they say he suffered a season-ending injury, right? Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. If a guy's going to be... Maybe not on Monday when nobody knows yet. Right, but but after the next game, when Mm -hmm. if he's not going to play the rest of the year, after the first game he misses, they're like, he's not going to play the rest of the year. Yeah, they they don't mess around with that. If a guy is going to be out for a foreseeable amount of time, which I would des- describe as more than six weeks, will they let you know that? Or does that, do we get into the charcoal gray area of I would say if, if they know a guy is going to be out six weeks, let's say, that probably ends up being communicated as, um, yeah, it, it's... It's we expect him back. It's not season ending, but um, could could be a little a little longer for for him. He's working through it. Working through it is the working through. It's the go to. Okay, if a guy's, he's working if a guy's, through it. Means he's he's got a rehab plan that well, he's 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 kind of embarked upon, and and we're not on a timetable of when he's going to start. Practicing it's versatile yet. though, because they've said it about Jalen McMillan and Julius Bulow. Um, when I hear working through it, I, I immediately assume that that player is not playing this week, at least. Okay. Um, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, we're still, you know, we're, we're he's working hard this week. You know, we're still going through a few things with him. That's not good. You don't you don't want to hear that. Um, so, I, with that said, um, I expect Jalen McMillan to play against Oregon. Okay. I kind of think. I asked DeBoer after the game if the bye week timing was factoring into that, and he said maybe a little, but, you know, he, from what I understand, he was active at practice last week um, to some some degree. I think DeBoer said he was a day or two away. So if that's true that he was a day or two away, um, then you'd, you'd expect him to be back two weeks two weeks later. So I'm I'm counting on Jalen McMillan playing. Tulila Tulinasanoa is a... Mm-hmm. That's a big one. That's a big one because you're facing a, a really a team that's going to want to run the ball and with some really good running backs and that's you a know. really big leg you're talking about too with Thule. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if it was an ankle or a foot. Um, exactly what they were what they were looking at on the field there, but I I don't think there's any way he'd play if they played Saturday. So the bye week is probably really good timing. It it sounds like it's no sure thing either way. Again, this is just me like trying to interpret and read between the lines. Um, but they, you, there was at least some some optimism from Inge and from DeBoer that um, that he could get back. So we'll see. I he's one like you know no one's worried about a, a D tackle for like fantasy football purposes. But if if you were, he's one I would not necessarily like count on having in the lineup to put it in those terms uh doesn't mean he's not going to play but that one feels very up in the air to me and then um Romo Dunze is uh that's interesting too because he took he took a shot on the onside kick right yeah yeah and you saw on tv him kind of holding his side slash ribs maybe coming off 
And he came right off and he sat down on the bench. And that was all Kalen DeBoer knew when he talked to us post game. It was just like, oh yeah, yeah, he's you know he's okay. He came through it. Um, I asked him about it again on Monday, and he did kind of acknowledge like it was a more significant shot than than he he was aware of post game. Um, he said like you know he's he's doing okay. He's a little sore. You know he'll take the bye week. Those sort of things. It was not a discouraging update, but again. How much are they willing to share publicly? How much of this do we take at face value? So um, it at least seems like there's some question with him. Maybe the bye week helps. Maybe we'll get something a little more definitive on Monday or, or maybe not. Um, but uh, it, there's, you know, if there were an injury report, if they were required to release an injury report like an NFL team, I think that you would, you would probably see him on it um, at least during the week. Is it his abdomen? I don't know. Um, I don't know. It it looked like the like the rib cage mm-hmm. area. That's what me. it looked like to me. Um, so he, you know, the fact he got right up and walked off, maybe like. But then look, he's he's really tough, right? Like he's maybe he was in a tremendous amount of pain, but he's he's just a tough guy. So he's he's not down, and it it didn't look as as bad as as maybe it is, or or maybe it's not all that bad. Maybe it's. Um, it's it's tough. It's significant, but it's something he can play through. We just don't know. So um, it's you know the fact that they're that it's even a question that it's something that they're dealing with is is very unfortunate considering it happened on an onside kick that I'm sure the offense feels like they could have avoided that ever happening if they just kind of stepped on their throat a little bit earlier. So you know that's football. I hope he's okay for a lot of different reasons, the foremost of which is. He's such a tough player and such a good player and feel so incredibly fortunate that he decided to come back. And also just how good of a player he is. Um, I hope he's okay. Asa Turner, is is he expected back? Yeah, I I don't know. It, it feels like he's – I know it's a hand thing. Um, he worked out before the Cal game a couple hours before the Cal game, just doing workout on the field, calisthenics and stuff. Um, so I, you know, I don't, I don't know, like, is there a point where you feel comfortable with a safety playing with the club type of thing? Can you do that? Um, is it, you know, that's another one, right? They said he was doubtful like four weeks ago, three weeks ago. We didn't make the trip to Michigan state. Um, and then for, for Cal. So I, yeah, I, maybe the bye week helps him too. And they get him back. I feel like Cam Fabiculanen's played pretty well. Yes. Um, in, in, in his absence. So, but you know, he's kind of been dinged up here and there too. So they definitely, you know, you definitely want your senior safety back if, if you can get him. He's one I really don't know. I don't have a great, you know, they, they, their lack of specificity on him kind of made it not worth asking anymore. <laughs> so it's funny with the Seahawks, Pete Carroll, if the guy's going to be out for a foreseeable amount of time, usually Pete says, we're going to have to take care of him. Like that's the sign that it's his season's done. And then if he says it's going to be a bit, that's usually like put it on the shelf for a month and a half. And maybe that's the doubtful. Like once the once the Huskies declare someone doubtful, it's like check back in a month. Yeah. Um, it's always interesting to figure out how to parse 
the injury talk because it is hard to do and it's almost entirely guesswork and that that's in the NFL where there is a level of transparency that's required by the league whereas college that doesn't exist at all they're not obligated to tell you anything yeah they so they they'll have to next year um when they join the Big 10 but only i believe it's only game availability so you won't have the the midweek you know did he did he practice was it partial um but they will have to they'll have to tell you if guys are out or probable or questionable or maybe it's just out or or not i don't know when do they, do they say that day of game um let me look it up here it's they, they announced this a while back and i forget the exact specifics yeah game day um Game day player avail- player availability report. Each member institution is responsible for submitting their injury reports at least two hours before their respective kickoff times. Okay. Um, the conference will distribute it. Sounds like on their website and on social media. Um, and it, it is it is going to be league wide. So that's so I, stupid. What, what is the point of that? Yeah, I again, like, I is it just, is it just for fantasy football? Because that's what it kind of feels like yeah. to me, but it's college. so. Because in the NFL, the NFL injury reports, that's for gambling purposes. And it's not the way people think that it's to encourage gambling. The reason the NFL does that is because by making the injury reports required, they lessen the possibility that availability, the, the information doesn't mean as much. If you didn't have injury reports, there would be a huge importance of knowing if a player was likely or unlikely to play which would consequently mean that you would have people potentially selling that information or using that information to make big bets. So the NFL, we're just going to legislate it. So that information is available to everyone and nobody has the edge. That's not valuable. The big 10 policy doesn't actually eliminate any of that because if you're saying it two hours before the game, most of the bets have already been cast by that point. Maybe, um, Maybe they're just tired of, you know, they want to relieve the media from sitting up there with our binoculars, seeing who's in uniform and who's not. <laughs> they want it is one it. of the funniest, it is one of the funniest exhibitions or demonstrations, parts of it that people do, rivaled only by the the fact that NFL reporters do it at practice and have this big, long check mark of go through who's doing what, he doesn't have a helmet on, he's only doing individual work, he's doing team drills. So stupid. You miss it. You miss no, it so much. No, like if there's there, the one thing I miss least is is covering practice. We're talking about practice. Yeah, practice, it, man. It's it's a conundrum a little bit there because people love reading observations from practice. And like I think it's really valuable because we get to be there when people don't. Right. So like we're their eyes and we can see this guy looks good. This guy's playing here. Oh, they move this guy to this position. This guy's coming up, you know, challenging for reps and. Um, but the, the idea of like covering practice as if it's like a competition to be won or lost, it's always very strange to me. Like, Oh, the off- offense got the better of the defense today. Well, they were practicing. <laughs> like they, and, and I get it. They compete. They do compete. Like there are, there are periods where they're there. Yeah. There's a winner and a loser and you want to win. You don't want to be the loser. You don't want to have to run afterward or whatever. And you know, when you're playing, when you're scrimmaging, like scrimmage periods, 11 on 11, like you want to do your rep right. You want to you want to do your assignment properly and all those things. But like, they're, it's not it's not always like 
the offense isn't calling plays just to beat the defense in practice. They're they're calling the plays they want to rep. They're calling the plays they want to practice, and so is the defense. So, especially covering Mike Leach at Wazoo, that was a funny thing because the defense would get like six interceptions in a practice, and people would ask like the quarterback or the receivers after, we're like, oh. Really rough day, huh? And they were like, yeah, well, we were only allowed to w- run one route the entire two hours. So they kind of figured it out, at, you know, at a certain point. <laughs> I believe I believe that, uh, <laughs> that that there are some Husky uh, football players who might say that the Washington State game plan is not significantly more complicated when Mike Leach was coaching them in the Apple Cup. Yeah, <laughs> well, they would run about four routes. Their defensive backs coach would have said that for sure. And in fact, did <laughs> several times. Oh uh, yeah. Well, I hope I hope Rome's okay. That's that. I try not to go down the road of man. He shouldn't have even been out there, and they should have put it away because, to to quote Al Pacino in the, the movie Heat, you could get killed walking your doggy. <laughs> like there's no there's there's no taking risk out of the game of football. But that was that was particularly brutal to to watch that happen on an onside kick. We need to have like an Al Pacino quote of the week. Al Pacino <laughs> finds his way into this podcast regularly. Well, it's no accident. Like he is, he is one of the craziest. He became a caricature, and it's always funny to me when that happens. And Al Pacino clearly became a character. Uh, well, as Ian said um, at the top of his question there, and again, thanks, Ian. It was was a tough week. Is a tough week. Will continue to be. Uh, my uncle Jim Capel. Uh, died on on Sunday night um, after a long uh, battle bout with both ALS and dementia, um, which you know, I, I wrote something about and published on Tuesday. And like I said there, I mean, I just I can't imagine a more just unfair, cruel combination. It was extremely difficult to to kind of watch him have to go through that these last couple of years. Like Ian said, you know, you probably a lot of people listening who who do know what it what it is like to watch, to, to grieve the living, you know, to already start to miss somebody because they're not the same person um, while they're still there with you physically. And it's, um, you know, it, it's a feeling Jim knew, right, with, with my grandma, with, with his mom, um, spent the last several years of, of her life suffering from Alzheimer's. And, you know, God, dementia is just, it's everywhere. It's so, it's it's such a monster. And, yeah, I'd be surprised if there's anybody listening who hasn't, seen it up close, been touched by it firsthand, whether it's a parent, grandparent, family member, uh, a parent of a, of a, of a friend or, um, somebody in your life. It's, um, you know, and, and unfortunately statistics say it's, it's going to get worse there's going to be more instances of it here going forward. And it's just, um, it's just about the worst thing to watch, man. It's, it's been really rough. I'm really sorry about that. And I'm also really sad about sort of the loss of Jim. I knew Jim as a in passing as a colleague. I never worked with him, but have worked around him a, a ton, which he was one of the absolute, I consider him kind of a heavyweights of Northwest journalism. Even though he spent so much of his career in, in Minnesota, he was someone that anybody that's worked at the UW Daily knows of Jim Capel and I was fortunate enough to know him not while he was at the UW Daily but later on and 
a truly just a gifted writer and really beautiful person with the perspective he had. I have a lot of fairly negative feelings about the direction of sports journalism. And I think some of that comes from just being an old man, but I think some of it comes because seeing so few people and a decreasing number of them who exhibited the kind of sort of humanity and eye for unexpected surprises and happiness that reflected in Jim's writing. Jim, Jim loved baseball. Like that was clearly such a huge passion of his, but he also distinguished himself of someone with just a little bit of a wry sense of humor and an eye for really unusual and uplifting stories. He's the only sports reporter I know who ever posed naked for a pictorial. <laughs> Those were making the round. Rod, Rod Marr posted that. So funny. Not only that, but that <laughs> I don't think there's any activity that would be less attractive to do naked than bicycling <laughs> from the whole like um, the the actual logistics of it combined with the appearance combined with the sheer danger of that's there's a lot of gears and things moving around that you wouldn't want touching those sensitive parts <laughs> he, he was willing as kind of a spoof on it wasn't a spoof on the body issue it was a spoof on the people who cover athletes, these people, these athletes who like we, a sports journalist makes a living off of covering the efforts of these physical marvels. And we are anything but, and it's just, I will always laugh at the idea that Jim Capel posed naked for the body issue. <laughs> so much of, of what he did was just him being the only person to to think hey, what if i tried this what if i did this you know what if oh yeah like this this like grueling death race tough guy competition in england like yeah i'll go do it i'll go try you know and he was in better shape than most people in our in our business yes, a hell he lot was. better shape than i am um but yeah he <laughs> i you know growing up when i was a little little kid he was covering the twins for the for the saint paul pioneer press in minnesota and you know, I like you get on an airplane and go to every game, and you like you know Kirby Puckett and Paul Molitor. Like you, you talk to him. You're in the clubhouse and you watch the games from the press box for free. Like, man, that sounds like just the most amazing thing ever. And you know, I thought it was cool as I got a little bit older. And he worked for ESPN. Like my friends knew who he was, and you know. I just, I thought, oh, like, you know, Jim's a big deal because he's got this job at ESPN, right? Like, Jim's a big deal because he's a he's a, a national baseball writer who, like, a lot of people around the country read his stuff, and he's got this big platform. And it wasn't until I got a little older, you know, maybe late high school into college and, and kind of tried to start doing this myself and actually got to know people in the business who knew Jim and the way they talked about him. And then, of course, the summer in 2009, when I got to got to stay at his house for a few months and kind of watch it up close, where it really set in like, no, like Jim's a big deal because he's different. Mm -hmm. Like he's he's different. Like there's just 
you know, you, you'd, and it was like, you know, how when you're, you're a beat guy and like, I'd, I'd hear this said about Gary Smith for, a, you know, if Gary Smith showed up at the New York Jets facility or whatever, and if you were the Jets beat writer, you'd be like, oh no, what's, you know, what's he here to write? Like, God, he's going to, he's going to sit down with someone, he's going to write 10,000 words and he's going to like get at the, have a trillion details that I never knew about this team that I cover. And with, with Jim, it was, it was more like you were amused when he showed up because you were like, Oh, okay. What's so what, what's Jim going to do off this? I bet it'll be hilarious, you know? Um, and he like, just no ego either. You know, that was what, and I probably took that for granted too. Like, you know, someone who gets to a certain stage and the way that this business is like, he didn't have any of that, like, oh, you, th- you, th- so you think you want to be a sports writer, huh, kid? You know, like, oh, well, it's, you, 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 not just anybody gets to where I get to, you know, not this, you, this is hard work now, or like, oh, you think you, what, you think just because your uncle's a sports writer, you can do it, you know, it's just the complete antithesis of that. Just like he was, he thought it was just like the coolest thing that he had this little nephew who wanted to do what he did and wanted to be like him. You know, and um, you know, obviously lucky to have two really supportive and encouraging parents. And, you know, my, my dad and Jim kind of had that special bond over baseball and, and sports. And, you know, they worked together um, more than once to, to give me some of those opportunities, you know, for, for me to shadow him in the press. But, I mean, God, going in the press box and going in the clubhouse when I was 16. And I still remember, like, yeah, for me, like meeting Dave Niehaus was like, I, I don't know how many people I could have put on a list ahead of like, hey, if you could meet anybody in the world right this second, who would it be? And for him to, for Dave to greet him, just like, oh, hey, Jim, how you doing? You know, like it's just the most normal thing in the world that my uncle knows Dave Niehaus, you know, um, which like you're getting a little bit older. It's like, well, like, you know, you all work in close proximity. You, you get to know these people, whether they're legends or not, right? Like that's who's around. But, um, and I, when, when Dave, um, won the is it the Ford Frick Award mm-hmm. for broadcasters to go into the Hall of Fame? I remember at his press conference, Jim asked him a question, and he before he answered, he was like, "It's like, oh, I loved your, I, I love what you wrote about whatever, whatever it was in the in the magazine this month. That was so funny, and just seeing like, like man, like you know, people people really loved Jim and loved the way he went about." The way he went about his job and his zest for life and you know, the way he like he involved my his wife, Vicky, my aunt, in everything, you know. I just, I don't think it would have been the same for him. All the travel and the Olympics and you know, I think it it was important to him that he could share that with Vicky and that you know, that could kind of be part of their adventures together and man, I just like sitting down to write that that story. I kind of intended to do it um, while he was still alive as just sort of like a, Hey, you know, Jim Capel kind of went away for a couple of years and here's what's been going on. And it's been really hard, but let's, you know, let's take this chance to remember his career and, you know, just kind of let people know what was going on. Um, and so I, but as I really sat down to write it and, and finish it up after he passed, I, I'm just like, God, I don't, would a hundred thousand words be enough? You know, I'd need a book. I'd need two books. It's just, it's unbelievable all the stuff he did. 
your piece captured, and if anybody hasn't read it, on it's available on Montlake.com. It also was published at 710sports.com. It's beautifully done. In those situations, you can feel pressure to, like, how do I sum this up? You write what you feel, and you did that. And you spoke to who Jim was and who Jim was to you. And it's really powerful. And Jim was an incredibly important person to an awful lot of people, which speaks to who he was as a, in this world. Um, Jim was himself. That's Jim had a unique perspective that he brought to a profession that has continued to become more angry and more sort of divided into camps of screamers. Jim, Jim never, never veered in that direction. When Jim worked in Minnesota, he ended up at one point um, going and covering local government there. And in that role, he met uh, columnists and longtime political reporter there who had gone to high school with my dad. His name's Jim Ragsdale. He passed away a couple years ago. And I didn't realize that. I didn't know that Jim was was covering politics at that point. Capel was covering politics at that point. And Jim Ragsdale, who was one of my favorite people on this earth and someone who's been incredibly important to my family, loved Jim Capel. And it was so... It just fit because it reflected who both of these people were. And I was like, of course, Jim Ragsdale would really, really love your uncle because of who he was and how he saw the world and how that informed everything he did. And one of the things that I admired most about your uncle was that he never let the jerks that can populate professional sports, whether it's other reporters or managers or particularly prickly players, sort of make him cynical about what he really enjoyed. Like he loved baseball. That always came through and he was always amused by the jerks. And that made his writing about them even funnier. <laughs> and I, his, his attitude, when I was growing up, Tom Kelly, I thought of who was the Minnesota twins, longtime manager. I thought of Tom as this very, very sort of stoic and kind of, refined presence on the bench and that's not who Tim, Tom <laughs> Kelly was in the actual scheme of things and certainly not what he was like to cover and when Jim would describe him it was so funny because it was as if Tom Kelly's antics amused him which I was like oh that's that's why Jim's so that's why he was was such a great writer is because he never let the the subjects sort of make him feel worse about the world. Um, they were just characters. And it's like, it's interesting. This person sees this as differently as I did. Here's what I think is funny about it. God, he he's showed a beautiful me, writer. When I was in high school, he showed me like his email inbox one time and all the like, you know, cause he, part of his shtick for a long time was, and it wasn't, it wasn't really shtick. It was genuine. He hated the Yankees. Hated the New York Yankees. He wrote a book about it, just you know, making fun of them. And he so he would, and that was kind of part of the personality of of page two. Um, you talking to to Kevin Jackson, Jim's you know good friend and longtime editor. He was one of the founding editors of page two at ESPN.com. He's at Fox now, 
And he kind of said, like, we wanted page to, we wanted the page to kind of have its own personality. And like the, almost like page two hated certain teams or like page two loved certain teams. And it was going to be for the fans. We were going to write about sports the way that, that a fan would. And that was like, Jim always had like the common man's back. Like he always had the fans back, you know, like he was, he, he would go after greedy owners Mm -hmm. and, he wrote a column criticizing the University of Washington when they moved the student section from between the 20s to the end zones on ESPN.com. Um, anyhow, you know, UW would say there were revenue reasons for that, right? They can sell those seats, blah, blah, blah. We know why they did it. But, you know, that was just all like, it's like, hey, I, I went to UW in the 1980s and I sat in, in those seats and it was amazing and it was an awesome experience. And like you're telling me those kids just aren't going to get to do that now. That's not right, you know, and. So he, he, he wasn't like a super confrontational guy. Um, obviously like when you write humor, you're going to miss sometimes and, and there are going to be some attempts at, at humor and sarcasm that come off a little meaner and, you know, that could go back through some of his old stuff. Like you could say that about some things he wrote, but he was, he was always going to try to be critical of like power. Mm-hmm. And I saw somebody, I wish I could remember who it was in the last couple of days, either a comment or a tweet or something say like he made, he could take unfamous common people and make you care about them and care about their stories. And he could, he could take famous popular people you knew about and write about them in a way that like made them much smaller and made took them down to size not again not even in a critical sense but just like took them down to a size where you're like okay like this is this is just a person you know this is i see him on tv all the time but like you know look here they jim's telling me that they do this this and this and you know that that's just a guy you know at the end at the end of it he kind of understood you know he was um vicky told me the only person he was ever nervous to interview or maybe it was just that the person he was most nervous to interview was Bruce Springsteen because like an entire generation of sports writers, he was a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. I never, um, yeah, obviously Jason Isbell was, was around and making music. Um, while Jim was still with us and, and before the dementia and everything, I never did have a conversation with him about Jason Isbell. I don't know what he thought about Jason Isbell. <laughs> uh, it's funny you mentioned page two. Um, Page two is an initiative at ESPN.com that they they attracted a lot of high power and paid for a lot of high powered writers. Hunter S. Thompson wrote there. Um, Ralph Wiley, who is a longtime Sports Illustrated writer and someone whose work I admired a great deal. Uh, Bill Simmons, uh, s- s- he didn't start there. He'd been writing in Boston, but that kind of became a national platform where he became David Halberstam for a minute. Yeah, Halberstam did it for a while. Jim Capel's the one that epitomized the voice of that section. He's he's the one that best embodied it. And Bill Simmons became uh, maybe the wealthiest and most famous sports writer um, ever from that. And certainly Hunter S. Thompson and Halberstam had their own. But it was Jim that had that sort of wry, sarcastic, little bit offbeat, like you said, kind of everyman perspective. Um 
he was he was absolutely every bit a national heavyweight in terms of certainly how I saw his work and what I think his work meant. Um, yeah, I'm really sorry for your family too, Christian. And that's having someone who does have a prolonged illness and sort of gr- the grieving the living and the, the pain that goes through that. And then the actual loss itself that happens, there's a, there's a finality to that, um, that, that is really hard to reckon with. And you have to balance some of the relief that you feel that this person you love is no longer suffering with the, the sadness at the, at their departure. And then the hold that's kind of left and my thoughts just go out to you and your family. Um, I'm sad. And Jim was a writer that I admired a great deal. He was so much more than that and so much more than that in your family. Yeah. Well, thank you, Danny. I, I appreciate it. And, and we appreciate it. Um, it, you know, we were talking a little bit before, uh, you know, the, the, the privilege of being Jim's nephew definitely extends in, into these days as well. Um, and just getting to see how many people thought so highly of him and all of the, the tributes and the memories. And Hey, it was, it was kind of a trip to see. So, you know, Claire Smith, um, was a recipient of the award for baseball writers. That's, that's awarded at the, in Cooperstown at the hall of fame ceremony. And, um, Jason Stark received it in 2019. Another of, of Jim's really close friends, Tim Kirkjian has won it. Um, I believe Peter Gammons has won it. I believe Dan Shaughnessy has won it. Um, Claire Smith, I think was the first, the first woman, um, to win that award. But anyway, she, she plays a, a pivotal role in a, a great Jim story that I, I actually had on the page and it was just this it was so long and i was looking for stuff i could cut and it didn't quite fit the way i wanted but i really wanted to get it in there and i i lost it i wish i i wish i'd left it in but when jim was at i believe it was when he was at the bellevue journal american early in his career uh the yankees were in town and he was going to do a story on steve trout their their pitcher and he, i think he'd been struggling and he goes into the yankees clubhouse and he asks a, a player hey uh, have you seen Steve? You seen Steve Trout? You know where he is, and he looks over at his locker, and he's like, "Oh yeah, see, so he's sitting right there in a stool in front of his locker." He goes over and introduces himself, asks, "Hey, you got him a few minutes?" Yeah, yeah. He starts asking questions about you know kind of his recent struggles and his season, and he answers them. You know, you know, fair. It's a good conversation. He leaves, goes up to the press box, starts. Uh, he's gonna you know gonna start writing about Steve Trout. And Claire Smith, who was covering the Yankees at the time, I think for the Hartford Current, if I remember correctly, um, very gently, very kindly says, hey, um, just so you know, that was Dave Rigetti you were talking to. <laughs> he was he was pretending to be Steve Trout <laughs> and answering <laughs> questions as if he were Steve Trout to mess with you. <laughs> <laughs> And and Jim never forgot Claire Smith for that. Not that anybody could forget Claire Smith. Um, but I saw, like, she shared my story on on Twitter. I mean, that it's just, it's just like, man, like I've been hearing this Steve Trout 
Claire Smith story forever. It's like one of the, that's the thing. Jim wrote so much about his own life and was so first person with everything that it's not just me. You know, I mean, I know some stuff that a lot of people don't because I know him personally. I'm related to him. But, like, I feel like a lot of people, if you just read everything he wrote, you would kind of have this pantheon of Jim Capel stories because he put them in print. You know, he put them out there in the world. And that that's one that um, <laughs> came up a lot. And it's hilarious. And so he he's always said, like, yeah, like, I owe Claire Smith for not, like, d- destroying my career by quoting Dave Rigetti as, <laughs> as if he were Steve Trout. He, so funny. He wrote a call. He he wrote a column about it. Or at least mentioned it in a column in 2013. Um, and he said something like, um, "I learned a value. You know, it, it was a valuable lesson, though. For example, um, I made damn sure that Mike Trout actually existed before I voted for him for MVP last year." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just I mean, all these names and all these. And I guess that what was weird too, like growing up and hearing him talk about certain writers. And then, like, getting to the age I am now and being like, man, like, this like this person was a really big deal, too. And this person's a really big deal. And this person's a really big deal. But, like, to me, like, they're just my uncle's friends, you know? They're just people he, people he knew and associated with. And um, like, kind of like I mentioned in the story, you know, seeing getting to see um, Jason Stark and Jerry Krasnick see him for the final time um, this July was you know that was special that was a that was one of those really good days and you know joyful memories that Vicky talked about how you know and that's that's um that's maybe the most profound part of I think her experience is just that this idea that like it's easy to look at somebody who's afflicted by dementia or alzheimer's or whatever it might be and say like well you know that's not really them anymore right that's not the person we know and it's not, but you, you only get one life and, you know, all of us are only here for a very short amount of time. And so what a, what a disservice it would be to, to not maximize every last minute of it, you know, is who he was and who folks who, who suffer from those horrible illnesses are in their final years, um, is, is sort of irrelevant to the the larger picture which is that that's still part of their human journey that's still part of who they are on earth and there are still happy memories to be made even though the same day you know the same hour that you make those happy memories there are there are also awful memories that go along with it um i think vicky really came to embrace that and that was really admirable to to see yeah. Death is something we inevitably experience over the course of our lives and then in the end for us. And it's hard to talk about and it's hard to understand because it's so sad, but it is a part of life. And caring for someone as they become diminished and through the indignities that age inflicts on everybody at some point and unfortunately some sooner than others there's a tenderness in that too and 
the ability to provide what companionship and sort of grace you can to people who are afflicted with that is ultimately a gift to you because you find your own moments of solace and hope and happiness even amidst sort of that sadness. And I think that's one of the fundamental challenges and truths of life, which is that it will end at some point for all of us. And you try to make the most of the time you have while you're here. And part of that is making the most with people whose paths you cross along the way. And I do like the image of sort of we're all walking each other home and our paths cross and merge at different points or branch off and fork off, but we try to be good companions to each other while we're sharing this journey. And Jim, for whatever extent people crossed paths with him, whether it was in print and reading him or knowing him or having him as an uncle and sort of formative influence, Jim has made everyone's path more enjoyable. And I hope we all, to some extent, did the same for him because he was a truly wonderful person. Yeah, it was... um he was, it was very easy for him, um, to be moved and influenced by others. He, he allowed himself to be, you know, he, there was nobody who might talk to him or, or ask him a question or something that he didn't have time for, or that he wasn't interested in, you know, he, he wanted to know about everybody around him. You know, he'd, God, I'd have friends who'd meet him for the first time and be like, man, your uncle's a really good guy. You know, he, we wound up talking about, you know, whatever some, you always wanted to know, like he, he always told me like, Hey, whatever, if you're doing a job interview, make sure you've got, even if it's not true, like they might ask you what the last book you read was like, make sure you've got an answer. He, <laughs> it would be true for him. Cause he was always reading. He would, I, and this is again, I mean, it's going to be a million of these, but like one thing I, remembering after the fact, I wish I'd mentioned in the story cause it was so different. And so him, like he would, he would bring a book with him into the clubhouse, like while he was waiting for whichever guy he needed to talk to. Cause he, you know, he'd done it forever. He knows that a lot of time spent in the clubhouse is just standing around waiting and he'd bring a book with him and just read a book <laughs> in the clubhouse while he's, and people would just walk by and be like, eh, that's what's Jim reading today. You know, that's Jim. And he, he recommended I do it too. And I was like, I don't know. I don't quite have the clout to pull that off. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Dude, you'd have to be a pretty special person to not get shoved into a locker for doing that. <laughs> Maybe that says it all right there. <laughs> he was, uh, my dad liked to say like Jim really wasn't a big sports fan. He was a baseball fan. He mm-hmm. loved base. I mean, in terms of like the the mechanics of the game and the sport, there was he was so much more interested in baseball than anything else. And then you know, as he got older, cycling I'd put in that category. He got pretty into tennis, um, but he loved 
I, everybody, I've said this, everybody remembers their college experience fondly. College was, you know, were formative years for a lot of people. He wasn't unique this way, but I, 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 I don't know if anybody loved their college days more than Jim did. I know he wrote once that college is wasted on the young college is wasted on the college aged. You know, you have to make all these decisions about your future when you, you don't have the wherewithal to, to do it properly. And, you know, about how different, how much more seriously he'd take things if he went back and, you know, he played IMA softball until he was like 27. He was on his widow, the widow makers, his intramural softball team. He wrote about a ton and which produced a ton of like Seattle area media or media adjacent, you know, Rod Marr, who's a photographer for the Seahawks now, um, at the work, Seattle times for, for a while. Great photographer. He was on that team. Eric Radovich, the stadium PA for, for Husky football, um, formerly Husky Fair director for a little while too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's like in charge of beer in the state of Washington. He's a very, very interesting guy, Eric Radovich, but he was on that team. Dan Lepsey, um, was an SID at, at Washington for a long time. And then Seattle Pacific and um, Sarge. Yeah. Sarge got a nice call from, from Dan on Tuesday. Um, I'm leaving, I'm, I'm leaving a ton of names out, but just saying, meaning the people he worked with at the daily, like, Bruce Orwall and Bruce Taylor, you know, guy, big names. People went on to work at the Washington Post and, and like founded the first fantasy football magazine. And, you know, Luke Esser, one of his best friends, um, went on to a career in politics and all the, the hijinks they got up to in school. And in 1986, first day of school in 1986, Jim was in college a long time. I'm not clear exactly on like when, which years he was taking classes. Wasn't his official graduation year is listed as 1997. Um, <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, because he started in he graduated from high school in 1980 and enrolled at UW in 1980 and was finally out of there like I don't know 86 or 87. Um, but he, you know, one of those deals where there was like a credit or two, he came up short. He like something, something weird where he didn't finish his degree. And I don't know if he knew that, or maybe he did know that and didn't tell anybody, but it wasn't until he was like deep into his career that it was pointed out to him that like, Hey, you never actually finished your degree. And I, I can't remember. I don't think he actually had to take the class. I think there was some class he took that then was counted later i i can't remember exactly what it was but he it was 1997 by the time he finally got it sorted out so whenever he wrote because he wrote a lot of stories for the alumni magazine or whenever he was written about in the alumni magazine it says jim capel 97 (laughs) (laughs) that is hilarious it's hilarious too because like he already was in college for a long time and so it's like oh geez jim you went to college for 17 years that's pretty impressive yeah so the, because I think I know this story. What did they do in you said eighty six or eighty seven? Yeah, so uh, he's credited with the idea. I think it was his his buddies who were the editors. But on the first day of of classes at the daily, um, they printed an inaccurate campus map, and it's <laughs> it says to our new friends, welcome freshmen to the university of a th- of <laughs> to the university of a thousand years. Of course, you won't be here that long, although it may seem like it when you're wearing your beanie. 
We've included this handy campus map for your first day at the university. It's easy to get lost here, so be sure you don't lose this newspaper. We hope you'll grow with us during your next six years at the university. <laughs> we sure enjoy meeting you. <laughs> Just stop by the communications building and stri- strike up a conversation with a friendly-looking person. Chances are he works for the Daily. And don't forget to pick up your beanie from Vice President Ernest Morris at the faculty club. Call him Ernie. That must be some sort of inside joke I'm not, I'm not privy to. You're laughing. Do you, do you know what that's referencing? I, I know that Ernest Morris, I know that he was the butt of and constantly re- referred to for about 20 years at the Daily because they were still doing it when I was there. I'm not sure the origin of why he was considered um, – There were different points where they would print his phone number as the complaints line for the UW Daily. Uh, He he was constantly taking uh, taking crap for the from the UW Daily. So it's accompanied by a campus map that has all of the building names rearranged. I see on on Husky Stadium it says student parking. (laughs) Um, And the uh, the UW magazine wrote about this in 2006, and Jim's quoted in it and. He he uh, he did his March Madness college tour in 2005, spring of 2005, and I remember him. He said he stopped by. I think it was Michigan State, and was trying to convince the student newspaper people at Michigan State to do something similar, but they wouldn't. And he always kind of decried, like, you know, that was he, he's like the student paper is supposed to be like a playground. You know, it's it should be crazy. It should be different. It should be you you should take chances and like you should you should take shots at the people in charge. And like it's supposed to be this kind of like off the wall experience. And that was kind of how him and his his buddies treated it. And, you know, like they they're the ones who painted the green monster in the corner of the wall in the newsroom. And it's still there today. Um, And they just had like he made it seem so much fun and. You know, I think you see, you saw some of that same mentality uh, on page two, honestly. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know he was responsible for the the misnamed buildings, but that is probably the stunt that is best remembered at the UW Daily. At least it was when I worked there um, as the example of the hilarity Um I'm not sure if anything that happened while I was there got to that level, but the sending freshmen out with, <laughs> because UW campus is huge. <laughs> it's so big. That, that would really be, you could, you could make a half hour, a half hour inconvenience for someone by doing that. It was fantastic. And no, you know, no internet, no Google maps, no, like you, you could, it wouldn't really work today. Because who's using a map printed in the student paper right. in 2023? But in 1986, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that freshmen were given actual maps in their, like, intro brochures and all that stuff. But if you saw the student paper and there was one right there, you might think, oh, yeah. Does he have anything written on the wall? I'm sure he does. Do I, you I, have anything written on the wall? I do. Um, He had one. There's one that's, like... I can't – there's nothing I would rather put my hand in than a baseball glove or something like <laughs> that. <right. laughs> I'm sure he's got a couple on there. Again, he worked there like seven years. So <laughs> Yeah. And people do, that don't know, there are, there are quotes that are written um, on the wall. And 
some of them get painted over through the years. Others remain there, but there's all these statements that are written that are on the wall there in the in the UW Daily Newsroom. Jim was at he was at UW for an interesting time. Um, he covered. Well, the... they got he was he was there when they did the take him up, leave him down, the argument over the goalposts where Don James went crazy. Yeah, at, at the UW Daily. Um, he it's, he always said Don James did not like him at all when he was a student reporter but he's like you know i called him several times when i was older as a professional for stories and he always answered and always was happy to hear from me so well that's great um he he covered the the orange bowl team in 1984 um he i believe he i know my parents were at this game jim would have been a student at uw i don't know if he was covering the football team yet maybe he was just in the student section but i believe he was at the game where the wave was invented um and did nothing to stop it that's one of the few blemishes on an otherwise stellar career (laughs) um yeah i just he he you know he did all that and i'd hear those stories growing up and it's just like yes okay so that's what i'll do you know i'll go i'll go to the university of washington and i'll i'll get a job at the student newspaper and i'll work my way up and i'll cover football because that's just how you do it and it was just kind of always the expectation you know, and like that's uh, was too young and, and immature to like understand what a privilege that was. Jim had gone to to UW and showed me around. And I mean, I he gave me a tour of the campus like my junior year of high school before I even had done one officially or whatever. And um, yeah, it was just quite the quite the example he set. I got him I actually bought him a shirt, a UW shirt at the bookstore. Um, probably month and a half ago two months ago or something like that and um he was very excited to put it on the next day so that was that was cool (laughs) jim wrote i i looked this up because i remember reading it um jim wrote it was i think it's toward the end of his well no because he's still writing off base it was a baseball column at espn.com and it was written in 2012 um and he described his 50 years of memories in baseball. And I wanted to just read the first two. But I remember this. It's fantastic. The whole thing is great. Uh, age five to six. I begin learning to read by studying baseball cards. While others read, quote, see spot run, end quote. I struggle over phrases such as, in the winter, Carl Yastrzemski works for a Boston printing firm. <laughs> age seven. My dad drives us to Seattle's sixth stadium, where my family and 6,696 other fans watch Jim Bowden and the expansion pilots lose to Cleveland. Bud Selig will hijack the team and move it to Milwaukee the next year. I still think about this whenever I interview him. <laughs> <laughs> and it just goes on, and it's just it's written in Jim's, that pitch-perfect voice that Jim, Jim Capel had as a writer, and it reflects sort of the the through line that, as you said, not baseball players, but baseball, the actual sport of baseball was for him. When I was interning at MLB.com covering the Mariners, there was this like prototype for a new batting helmet that MLB was discussing, like making it mandatory. Everybody had to wear this. And it was it was like being handed around the clubhouse and guys are just like trashing it. And Jim was Jim was there that day and he was like, you should he's like, you should write about this. You should ask ask all these guys what they think about it. And it could be, I bet it'd be pretty funny. 
And so I did. And it was, you know, they were, they were all like, oh yeah, like I'm not wearing this or like, oh, it looks like, looks like this. Or I think people were saying it looked like, um, the Darth Vader character in Spaceballs, <laughs> that, that helmet. Yeah. And I, I wrote it and it tried, it turned out great. Guys were funny about it. And I, I filed it in the, and the, the MLB.com editor that day was like, we can't run this. This is like it, the, the helmet's not even it's not we don't even know if they're going to use it yet. And it's like we're not going to let the players just like criticize this thing. Blah, like just total just zero sense of humor. You know, not even like, hey, man, this this is hilarious, but we can't like we just can't run it. I'm sorry. I wish we could because it's really nothing. And Jim felt so bad. He was like, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I suggest God, they spiked it. Really? They wouldn't run that. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I, I you feel like I feel like you wasted all that time because of my idea. No, see, that's that's what made Jim so such a beautiful journalist was because he didn't even entertain the possibility that other people might not have a sense of humor. Like he assumed that we all look at sports through the lens he did, which is honestly the way we all should look at it, which is it is essentially a game that we shouldn't ever take too seriously, even though it is an occupation and determining livelihoods. But these are not matters of life and death ultimately when it comes down to it and we should be able to remark upon the hilarious ridiculous things that we encounter along the way and he was not in any way built for corporate journalism which is why he was such a great journalist yeah he they're all just people and that was yes. how he approached everyone's they're just people they're just a person and, like, and everyone who looked at that helmet would think the same thing this is absurd yeah. <laughs> well we just need to see exactly how it's going to pan out and I, we, 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 we don't want to get too far ahead of things here it's like no it's funny how can it's funny it was like where's this isn't a notebook where's the <laughs> where's the injuries and in the next day starter yeah oh god uh rest in peace jim yeah. Rest in peace for sure. That's <laughs> still what I'll, he he did these top 10 videos where he'd kind of write like a Letterman-esque top 10 cuz he he was a super early adopter of all the vid, video and digital stuff um which I enjoy in retrospect. He he wanted to be an actor coming out of high school. He like he studied drama his first couple of years at UW. Um and then wound up going into journalism instead. So, like, I enjoy, he, you know, he got to be in front of the camera in some capacity anyway. And he'd, he'd write these, like, David Letterman-style top tens for people to read, like athletes to read, coaches to read, and would, would do them on video, and they were really funny. And I remember Jack McKeon was the Marlins, was named the Marlins interim manager when he was 82 years old in mm -hmm. 2011. And he wrote, like, a you know, a funny top 10 about you know, a lot of the jokes were about like, I think it was the, the 10, the 10 hardest things about being an 82 year old manager or something like that. And I'm sure a lot of them were just kind of like, you know, age jokes, right? Like, Oh, the games end after my bedtime or what, you know, whatever. And he'd always go up to the subject and say, Hey, I'm doing this. Like, would you mind reading? You know, what do you think? Would you read this on camera? And Jack McKeon looked at it and was like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. And then we got we got back in the elevator. I was I was at um, pi dot com at this point, covering the Mariners a little bit. And we got back in the elevator to go up. And Jim was like, 
well, now I kind of feel bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it hadn't dawned on him that like that might be that might be a little insulting or that like it might hurt. He's like, I think I think I hurt his feelings. Now I kind of feel bad. <laughs> like, oh, like I just, you know, I just thought this was to be like a fun, funny thing to do. But he really didn't see, he really didn't seem to appreciate my sense of humor much. And now I feel bad about it. <laughs> Oh, so it makes him so. Oh, that's great. And, I mean, bef- before we get going, just a big thanks to everybody who's reached out or replied or, or you know, commented on my story or posted their own memories of Jim. I mean, I've been blown away by the number of people who who said, you know, God, that was like that was the first thing I looked at on page two every day was if Jim had a new story and like you know, me and my friends would always be, you know. That that new that new Capel piece, or did you read did you read Jim Capel's new story? Or, um, gosh, people who said his columns were appointment reading, or who remembered you know this one or that one, or um, it's just it's been awesome to to see kind of the outpouring, and you know I saw Sports Center did a little a little thing on, um, guess that would have been Monday night Monday night's show. Um, the Mariners, you know, big thanks to, to Tim Hevley, uh, with the Mariners. Um, they did a little, a little tribute for him before Jerry DePoto's, I suppose now infamous remarks on, on Tuesday. I saw the Minnesota twins set out, a set out some flowers and a, a picture of Jim at a, a seat in the press box. And so that was cool. And yeah, I mean, it's just like, I, I told Vicky, you know, to see that so many people saw him and remember him saw him in the same light and remember him in the same way that that we do um has been it's just it's very touching to see i appreciate it my family appreciates it you know i see all of it and um just thanks to everybody who's who's reached out and and shared your own memories we um he's a beautiful beautiful person and a lovely writer and if you haven't read uh christian's tribute to him I, I encourage everybody to do so. And again, I'll just say like my best thoughts are with you and your family, Christian. Thanks, Danny. I, I appreciate it. Um, enjoy a, enjoy a weekend of college football without any, any worry about the desert or about, uh, Oregon just yet. Huskies are off. Got a, got a Saturday to watch some ball and, uh, we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>